Good evening and Merry Christmas, everyone. Just love seeing all those beautiful faces out there. You guys look great. And uh, praying for you that you have a wonderful celebration with your family as we marvel at the reality that Jesus came. That's why we're here. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking about Christmas this year, I came back to the word why. You know, we ask questions of why a lot. I, you know, one of my favorite phases with young children is when they go through that why phase. That's that phase, you know, where the young child is getting curious, exploratory. They're wanting to understand how the world works, try to figure things out. And they ask some doozy of questions, don't they? Some of the why questions are pretty simple, some complex, some profound. I remember my kids would come to me and say things like, Daddy, why is the sky blue? Well, uh, son, it's blue because light rays, they come through the atmosphere and those little molecules are moving around and that displaces the white and that changes the wavelengths and that's why the sky is blue. Now, honestly, at the time I had no clue what the answer was. I just Googled that before the service to tell you that tonight. I told them that the sky was blue because, you know, that's just the way it is. And thankfully at that stage, they say, okay, daddy, and they move on. It's been said that why might be the most important question that we ask. So it's really good that children ask it. And as adults, we should keep asking the question why too. Why? Well, because if you choose to stop asking why you're settling in in life. Growth, learning, development, all of those things require us to keep asking why. Why is the type of question that gets you to the root cause of things, to purpose? Why do you do what you do? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? So this Christmas season, I just want to take a couple of minutes and ask why of Christmas. We've been in this series, Pleased to Dwell. We've been talking about the depths of the incarnation. God became flesh. He moved into our neighborhood. Why would he do that? Why does God want us to know about it? Why should you or I care about it? You see, John's gospel answers all three of those questions with really one word. And the word is life. It's all about life. We're looking at one verse tonight, really. It's John chapter 1, verse 4. And the text says this very plainly. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. That's John's answer to why there is a Christmas. Christmas is all about life. Now, the... Um, Psychoanalyst and philosopher Eric Fromm famously said, to die is poignantly bitter, but the idea of having to die without having lived is unbearable. I would say that's an axiomatic statement. No one wants to say they've lived without having really lived, and that's why Christmas is such an important holiday, because it really goes to a core desire on the human heart, how do I really live? How do I really live? And the way that I answer that question will greatly inform 
how I choose to live. So clearly for John in Christianity, Jesus is the answer to the question. We go back to that verse again in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, for God, real life as he intended it is more than just mere existence. I'm convinced that that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what is this life that Jesus is talking about? Well, if you look at the Greek word for this word life, it's the Greek word zoe. Now, this word occurs in John's gospel 36 times, and nearly every time that it's used in John's gospel, he is referring to eternal life. Okay, he's talking about eternal life. What is eternal life? Now, you might think, well, that's a pretty silly question. Eternal life is unlimited life, right? Well, you know, it's very easy for us or common for us to think of eternal life in terms of quantity. Kind of sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, if I had unlimited time, I could do everything that I've always wanted to do. I could see everything that I've always wanted to see. I could hop on a plane and check all the boxes in my bucket list. I could learn that extra instrument that I've always wanted to learn, pick up that third or fourth extra language that I've always wanted to learn. But I want to just suggest this, that when Jesus is talking about eternal life, he doesn't just have longevity in mind, though that is inherent in the word. He's talking about more than that. As they say, be careful what you wish for. You ever read a book or seen a good movie about someone who gains immortality or finds the fountain of youth? What ends up happening to the person? Well, it turns out that when they get just more of this life in you know, unlimited amounts of time, it becomes like a curse to them. So Jesus isn't just talking about life in terms of quantity. In fact, when Jesus talks about life in his gospel, he uses two different words to talk about life. Now, one word he uses is zoe, that's eternal life. Another word that he uses is psyche. That's talking about your earthly life, the temporal life, the merely physical life. He talks about these two words in contrast in John chapter 12, verse 25. We've been looking at some of the sayings of Jesus, and we've noticed that Jesus can be somewhat provocative. In fact, if Jesus lived today and if he was on Twitter, he would probably shoot out some tweets that go viral. So this is another example of that. Listen to what he says in John chapter 12, verse 25. Whoever loves his life, psyche, loses it. And whoever hates his life, psyche, in this world will keep it for eternal life, zoe. That's a pretty provocative statement. And what is Jesus saying there? Is he telling me that I need to hate my life? Well, that doesn't sound very good. That doesn't seem to value life. Does Jesus not value life? Well, that can't be the case. Because... As we've been looking at the story of Christmas, we're seeing that God became flesh precisely because God values life. You see, you have to notice the words that he's using. Whoever hates his psyche, 
life. Now, the word hate there is an exaggeratory type of statement, hyperbole. We make these kind of colorful contrasts all the time. Uh, when you've tried something superior, for example, for the first time, it can ruin something that you've had many times that's of inferior quality. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Anybody here like steaks, like making steaks, like cooking steaks? Now, I have been on a steak uh, you know, fix lately. I've been on YouTube. I'm learning how to cook steaks just right, getting them to the right temperature. I've learned this method called the reverse sear method. It just makes them perfect. And by the way, in this Christmas season, Stop and Shop had rib roasts for $5.99 a pound. It was incredible. But I'll tell you what, if you ever had that kind of steak, that's called Wagyu beef, and people that eat Wagyu beef say that I can never go back to the simple choice grade after I've had this. I mean, look at that thing. Beautiful. It's got that, like, perfect fat marbling. I bet you that is Kobe grade Wagyu beef. Now, my thing is, I'm never going to taste that stuff because it's like $100 a pound. I'm gonna to have to stick with the $5.99 per pound. But the thing is, if I did eat that stuff, I might never wanna go back to the $5.99 per pound quality of steak. And I suggest that Jesus is saying something like this. Once you experience Zoe life, you'll never want to go back to Psyche life. It turns out that eternal life is not just about quantity, but also quality. It's a superior way to live. There's no comparison. That's why I like to call the life that Jesus is describing here life on steroids. So we've got to ask the question, well, how does someone get that kind of life? And we get the definition of eternal life, probably the clearest definition of eternal life in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is a prayer conversation that Jesus, the Son, is having with the Father. Notice what he says to the Father. Now, this is eternal Zoe life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the, essentially what Jesus is saying here is that the only way that you and I can get to eternal life is by knowing God the Father and God the Son. Now, I suggest that the knowing that he's talking about is not simply knowing certain facts or agreeing with certain facts that are true about God. Now, that isn't to say that you don't need to know facts to have eternal life. We have to know true things about God in order to know God, right? I have to know that Jesus is God the Son. I have to know that he lived a perfect life in my place, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again from the dead. So I, I definitely need to know all of those things, but John chapter 17, verse 3, is talking about more than that. It's not just talking about knowing in the sense that I know 2 plus 2 equals 4, or that the sky is blue, 
or that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States of America. It's more than just simply understanding facts. It's talking about knowing as in a mother who knows her child or lifelong friends who really know one another or a husband and wife who have grown deep in their relationship and they really know one another. This is talking about a personal relationship that goes beyond simply being mere acquaintances with one another. Now, Jesus makes this contrast in another part of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 7. Again, another provocative tweet, if you will, from Jesus. He's talking about the last judgment. And apparently, he says in this passage that there will be people who meet him at the last judgment, who he rejects because they never invested in a real personal relationship with him. Let me read this one to you. It says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, clearly, Jesus isn't saying there that they didn't know about one another because they're having a face-to-face conversation right now. They knew about him. He knew about them. What he's saying here is that they never had a real relationship. They knew about him, but they weren't close with him. They weren't on the same page with him. You couldn't even say that they were really friends. And that ends up being a deal breaker with Jesus. And that's because God is not interested in having a transactional relationship with you. So transactional, of course, means that I'm in this relationship because I get something from you, you get something from me. Uh, I've heard someone say it like this, that people have business friends at time. So a business friend is something where we have a mutual common interest together. And as long as that mutual common interest exists, then we'll be in a relationship. But that's not the kind of friend that you go to when you're experiencing your deepest problems and issues in life. You don't go to that kind of friend. You go to a real friend. And Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, that's the kind of relationship that God wants with you. He wants people who really know him. And my concern with people is that they've reduced faith down to a series of facts, that if I just simply agree about these things with God, then then I'll be okay. I'll be fine with God. But biblical faith isn't that. Biblical faith is about having a right relationship with God through Jesus. You see, that's always been what true faith is. Old Testament telling us about faith, New Testament telling us about faith. In fact, if you look at the prophet Jeremiah, God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 9 that knowing him is ultimately what defines our life. In his eyes, knowing him is like the only thing worth bragging about. Let's take a look at that passage. 
Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Not let, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, God's saying he's not interested in what you bring to the table in terms of your talent or your innate abilities or what you possess or what you own or where you live or when you live. What God is interested in is, is, is you knowing him, you having a personal relationship with him. The cool thing about this is that that levels the playing field. You don't have to be someone special. You don't have to be born with certain offerings that other people, you know, they talk about the 1% today. You don't have to be the 1%. Anyone can come into a right relationship with God primarily because anyone can know him. They can have a relationship with him. See, that turns out to be God's greatest gift. Christmas is all about gifts. We celebrate Christmas. We give gifts at Christmas because Christmas is the time where we appreciate the fact that God gave us his greatest gift. God became flesh and he moved into our neighborhood. That's the why of Christmas. He moved into our neighborhood to offer us eternal life, superior life. Now we have to get to the heart of the matter though and ask the question, well, what makes this life so good? Why is this eternal life, you know, why do people talk about heaven and say heaven is going to be this place of immense joy where each day you wake up will be better than the day before? Why is it going to be so good? And the only way to get to the root answer of that question is you have to look at God himself. Because here's what I'm going to argue. God must be an expert on life because God has always had life. Life was not created because God always possessed it. So he's the expert on the matter. And as you read the Bible and as you get a sense of who God is, I'm telling you, I get zero indication that God has spent one millisecond bored or dissatisfied with life. So if that's true, well, then I have to turn to him to understand what the meaning of life is and the purpose of life. And we learn about this purpose and this meaning of life in the very nature of who God is. You see, Christians worship a triune God. We talked about this in the first sermon in this series. If you want to learn more about that, you can go back and listen to that one. But really, what that means is that God is one being who exists as three persons in loving relationship with one another. You say, well, how does that work? And I'm telling you, it's a mystery. It makes my brain hurt when I think too long on it. Now, C.S. Lewis described God in this way. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. 
almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. What? Well, how, what does that mean? Well, it, it means that God is in constant motion, that each member of the Trinity is foreverly, forever lovingly relating with one another. And it turns out that understanding the Trinity then is like a key that opens the door to the meaning of life. You see, this Trinity, at the core of it all, it's a fellowship of hearts in relationship with one another. It turns out that relationship is not an afterthought in the universe, that relationship is central to all life, that the answer to your deepest longing is actually found in loving relationships. So at a lesser level, that means that the people that God's put in your life should be very, very important to you. That's what's going to make your life, that's what's going to make your Christmas this year, that's what's going to make your life feel full and rich, is actually loving the people that God's placed in your life, preserving those relationships, making time for those relationships, investing in those people. But at a greater level, even above that, is that you were made and created to be in a close and personal relationship with Him. You see, God is relational, and God took on flesh, to put it in the words of C.S. Lewis, in order to invite you into the dance. Isn't that incredible? That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas, and talk about mangers, and angels singing, and shepherds quaking. All of this is about Jesus permanently tethering himself to humanity so that we could eternally enjoy close relationship with God. That's what it's all about. In fact, the most profound verse in John is John chapter 1, verse 12. He says this, but to all who received him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God they are not reborn, not with a physical birth resulting in human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. You see, God the Father is offering you eternal joy by offering you the same kind of relationship that God the Father shares with God the Son. He is inviting you to become part of his family. The only way to become part of the family of God, according to the scriptures, is by faith. You can think of it like this. God has this constant offer on the table. It's always there. It's always present. He's constantly reaching out to you saying, I'm here and I'm willing to be in eternal life-giving relationship with you. The ball's in your court. Will you reach out to me? Will you embrace the relationship that I want to have with you? That's faith. The only way I come into that right relationship with God according to the scriptures is through Jesus the Son. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus is the only way to God. 
Have you entered into that relationship with him? Have you become a child of God? Let me just ask you to do something with me tonight. If you would just take a moment and bow your head and give God your attention. Quiet your thoughts. You know, we live in a distracted world. Things are constantly pulling at our attention. And in this quiet space, ask yourself a couple of questions. Have you entered into that eternal relationship with God the Father through the Son? And if your answer honestly tonight is, I have not, but I want to, I want to lead you through a simple prayer, a prayer of salvation. And here's the beautiful thing about this offer. The Bible tells us that once you become a child of God, nothing can remove you from God's family. And Jesus makes this offer to you as you are. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus is willing and ready to bring you into the family of God. So if that sounds like the greatest Christmas gift to you, I invite you to pray this prayer with me simply in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. By faith, I accept the relationship that you are offering me. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen.